goodness. Good morning. Good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Today is Friday. Guess what? It's already June. It's June 1st. I'm so excited. Um, I've had a, I'll be honest, I've had, I've had a horrible day. Like I've had a really rough, really long, not fun day. But guess what? We get to do that. This is my favorite part of the day. When I talk about my life and talk about the things I'm excited to do, basically the only thing, to be honest, is to make videos and do Strong Opinion Sports and, and go see movies. So I, I love Strong Opinion Sports. It's my passion. It's my favorite thing. And I'm so excited to talk about the NBA Finals. I want to jump right into it. Uh, we saw last night at the NBA Finals Game 1, we saw last night the Golden State Warriors beat the Cleveland Cavaliers. And it was no surprise that the Cavaliers won. I mean, everybody and their mother expected the Cavaliers to win. But here's what was surprising. What was surprising was how much the Cavaliers challenged the Warriors last night. It went to overtime. The Cavaliers needed, sorry, the Warriors needed overtime to beat the Cavs. That's crazy. That's That's kind of... I don't know. I don't think anybody really expected that. And trolls will say they did, but nobody did. So in overtime, the Warriors beat the Cavaliers 124 to 114. And I want to jump right into the final seconds of regulation because I'm seeing a narrative. Everybody's talking about this. I want to ask you, the viewer, the question, why is everybody blaming J.R. Smith? I know what happened. You know what happened. I'll explain in a minute what happened, but I don't understand how you can watch the game last night. And then your takeaway can be, you know what? It's J.R. Smith's fault that the Cavaliers lost. What? what did, did we? I, I don't understand. I, I think we watched the same game, and I simply don't get it. I don't understand why everybody's blaming J.R. Smith. So here's what happened in the final seconds of the Cavaliers and Warriors game. At least here is the final seconds of regulation. This is really when the Cavaliers lost the game. It was in the final 10 seconds of regulation. So here's the setup. The Cavaliers are down by one point. It is 106 to 107. The Cavaliers have the ball. So the Cavaliers have the final possession of regulation. They're down one. So LeBron James has the ball in his hands. LeBron James is dribbling at the top of the key. Now with 4.7 seconds left, LeBron James decides to pass the ball to George Hill. And that's, that's kind of where it really started going wrong was LeBron James had a chance to take the final shot and he passed it up. LeBron James gave the ball to George Hill, but here's what happened. George Hill got fouled. So with 4.7 seconds left, the Cavaliers are down one point. George Hill gets two free throws. George Hill makes the first, but he misses the second. It's a tie game. And J.R. Smith gets the rebound from the missed free throw. Now, J.R. Smith takes the ball. He dribbles out the clock. He runs He runs away. I, I think he must have thought the Cavaliers were up by a score. For some reason, J.R. Smith dribbles out the entire clock <clears throat> and regulation ends. And LeBron James is here. Everybody's kind of like, what in the world is he doing? And I, I understand the impulse, the, the, the maybe the desire to blame J.R. Smith because J.R. Smith is the last thing we remember from regulation. But I don't understand. I don't understand why everybody's blaming this man. I, I, I get J.R. Smith. Clear mistake. He he had a, a lack of self awareness. He made, but there are I I just there there are two people I would blame before I get to J.R. Smith. J.R. Smith is maybe the third biggest reason why the Cavaliers lost last night. There are two big reasons for two big people that are to blame, and it's George Hill and it's LeBron James. So may I point out if George Hill simply makes his second free throw, nobody's talking about J.R. Smith. Nobody even J.R. Smith ever touches the basketball. If George Hill would have simply made his second free throw, it would have put the Cavaliers up 108 to 107. 
But besides the missed free throw, what's more important here is LeBron James. LeBron James is the first person I would blame for the Cavaliers' loss last night. See, LeBron James had the ball with 4.7 seconds left, and he passed it up and gave the ball to George Hill. And I want to know why. He literally had the game in his hands and then literally threw it away. Like, I, I don't get it. I don't understand. Why would LeBron James pass up the final shot? Maybe you can argue, I'm sure someone will make this argument. It was the right basketball move. George Hill was open, yada, yada. I don't, I don't care. Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, nobody passes up that opportunity to take the final shot. He has the ball in his hands, less than five seconds left, and he decides to pass it? That makes no sense to me. I don't understand. Again, LeBron James had an opportunity to shoot the final shot, and he decided not to. He had the game in his hands, and he passed it up. It reminds me of something, you know, I just finished a semester of college. I had a class called astronomy, and we'd turn in our assignments every Friday to this dumb little box in, in one of our professor's hallways. And my, my friend offered to me one time, he said, hey, I can turn in your homework for you if you want. I'm going to go there later. I can do it for you. And I turned him down because I would rather control my own destiny. What if he forgets? What if he turns it into the wrong box? I have all these things. You know what? I can deal with it myself. If I can do it myself, I will because I don't want to put my fate in someone else's hands. And last night, LeBron James put his fate in someone else's hands. Why is LeBron James not taking the final shot? Why is his fate being determined by J.R. Smith or by George Hill? It makes no sense. I just don't understand. I, I cannot understand why LeBron James would pass the ball to George Hill. That is the one I can't get over. He had an opportunity to take the final shot. He didn't. And as a result, George Hill screwed up and J.R. Smith screwed up. And, and people are talking about George Hill and J.R. Smith, but nobody's talking about the fact that LeBron James had an opportunity. He could have made something happen and taken the final shot, and he didn't. See, if I screw up, if I take my assignment, if I turn my assignment in late or I turn it into the wrong box or, you know, I just forget, then it's on me. And I can live with it if I make the mistake. But I can't live with it if I give it to someone else and they make the mistake. LeBron James gave the ball to someone else and they made multiple mistakes. See, I would rather LeBron James take the final shot and miss. Then if LeBron James loses, guess what? It's on him. He's going to have to deal with it. That's fine. But I do not understand at all why LeBron James passed up the final shot and gave an opportunity to somebody else. It's just weird and, and I just don't get it. I don't understand. I, I, we, I'm going to talk about multiple times in this game last night where LeBron James decided to tempt fate. Instead of putting the game in his own hands, instead of grabbing opportunities for himself, LeBron James simply gave opportunities to other people and left fate up to other people. And it let him down, but I, I don't understand. LeBron James had it in his hands. Four point seconds left. LeBron James should take the final shot. He should not pass, and I do not understand. Look, he, he's better learn from it. Like, LeBron James better. If he ever gets this opportunity again, I want him to take the final shot. And he may not. That's what's sad is... LeBron James may not get this opportunity again in this NBA final series. LeBron James blew it last night. That's what no one's willing to say. They're talking about J.R. Smith or George Hill. The point is LeBron James had the ball four point seconds left and an opportunity to take the final shot. And he passively did not take his shot. He, pa he literally passed the ball away. He literally had the game in his hands, an opportunity to win the game. And he passed it up. That is what I take away from last night's loss, and that's what's very confusing to me. LeBron James had it, and he did not take it. That, that's what I, I can't forget about last night's Game 1 loss by the Cleveland Cavaliers. We have a great show today. We're going to talk more about the NBA Finals. I'm going to offer my analysis. I'm going to talk about um, the refs. The refs were 
way more of a factor in the game than they should have been. We're going to talk about the Cowboys a lot. We're going to talk about Dak Prescott. I'm going to talk about baseball, and, and I don't talk about baseball very often, but I have a, <clears throat> I have a rant, a, a frustration of mine with the Seattle Mariners, a, a team I grew up, I used to be a fan of the Mariners, and I'm going to tell you why I'm no longer a fan and what I learned from that experience, because I have a a lot of pain and a lot of anger probably about the Seattle Mariners that I've never dealt with and I want to talk about it. So um, the last thing I'm going to talk about at the end of the show, I'm going to revisit the Patriots story. The, you know, the Patriots aren't fun. We're going to talk about that story because I have, there's an updated little bit of news about that. We're going to talk about, remember you can subscribe to strong opinion sports on iTunes, on SoundCloud and on YouTube. You can find the full entire hour long podcast on YouTube, as well as my best, most interesting clips. If you like strong opinion sports as much as I do, Help me grow this podcast by telling your friends about this show. <clears throat> Drink some water out of my Montana State water bottle. I would love. I, I hope I would get to go there. Like we're, I'm working on it. I'm trying to figure it out. And that it looks like I may go to Montana State, but it's really up in the air right now. I'm just waiting on other factors that don't have to do with me. And so um, let, let's hope so. Like I hope hope next fall I'm in a dorm room, my own dorm room at Montana State broadcasting this podcast. So we will see. I want to talk now about game one a little bit more. <clears throat> so trolls will tell you, people that are internet trolls will tell you, you know, I saw it coming. I knew the Cavaliers were going to compete with the Warriors. No, you didn't. Nobody who understands basketball could have expected game one last night to be close. Nobody expected game one of the Warriors and the Cavs to be a close game. And yet it was. I, I repeat last night uh, in game one, in game one of the NBA Finals, the Warriors beat the Cavaliers in overtime. It took overtime to beat the Warriors 124 to 114. Um, and what happened was the Cavs showed the Warriors they're not going to back down. The Cavaliers arched their back and they, they punched back, really. I mean, it was, it was quite impressive. It was very highly entertaining. I, I loved the game. I haven't enjoyed watching a game that much in a long time. I even I recorded it. I rewatched a lot of parts from that game. It was awesome. It was a ton of fun. And really good for the NBA, but uh, I, I fear that the Cavaliers might have woken up the beast. See, we've seen at times the the Warriors are apathetic. They don't care. They're a little bit kind of, eh, we'll see what happens. And I think that's somewhat what happened in game one is the Warriors did not really come out to play. I mean, Kevin Durant only shot 36% from the field. That's not great. Um, not to mention there was another opportunity where Clay Thompson was out with an injury early in the game and... This really was the best chance for the Cavaliers to win, and they did not capitalize. Everything that could have gone right from a, a court perspective went right for the Cavaliers, and they still couldn't capitalize. And you can blame the refs, you can blame whoever you want, but the truth is, a loss never comes down to one thing. A loss is all about a series of things, and a series of things did not go well for the Cavaliers. I'll repeat this. I would say a series of things that could have allowed the Cavaliers to win last night Still, simply did not. I think that the Kevin Durant shooting poorly, Clay Thompson injury, that is offset by maybe the refs. But still, the Cavaliers had opportunities to win the game last night, and they didn't. And I think in game two, three, four, who knows, um, I think that the Warriors could come back even better because they did not have their best basketball game last night in game one. What's, what's frustrating about the Cavaliers from game one is that this is the most effort the Cavaliers have played with in this entire postseason, I, I, I'm frustrated going, where was this team for the last month? I don't understand. They hustled. They worked hard. I haven't seen that from the Cavaliers 
all postseason, and I don't really understand where that where it came from. Um, and, and it's very interesting that the Cavaliers dominated. The Cavaliers dominated inside. Rebounds, scoring, everything. The Cavaliers kind of had their way with the Warriors uh, inside the paint, which is very kind of interesting. And if you look at the box score, I mean, first of all, the box score shows LeBron James was incredible. LeBron James shot 59%. He had 51 points. LeBron James is unbelievable. But what's even more interesting is that it shows the Cavaliers worked their butts off. They just physically worked their tails off. They worked really hard and the Cavaliers dominated. They dominated rebounds. They had 64 rebounds to the Warriors 42 and especially they had the same number of defensive rebounds. But if you look at offensive rebounds, the Cavaliers dominated. They had 19 offensive rebounds to the Warriors just four. And and maybe that's cuz the Warriors weren't missing shots, I don't know, but it's 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 noteworthy that getting rebounds is all about effort. And the Warriors, or sorry, the Cavaliers, the Cleveland Cavaliers brought a ton of effort last night. And, and I just don't know why we didn't see that all, all postseason. Now, what is interesting is that, and I know overtime numbers are inflated. Because in overtime, you play more minutes, which makes your stat line a little bit better. But if you look at the stat line for the Cavaliers, only three people had over 10 points. Only three people for the Cavaliers had double digits. And that's kind of weird. I mean, LeBron James had 51 points. He shot 59%. Kevin Love had 21 points. He shot only 45%, which is, it's not horrible. It's kind of about average for Kevin Love. And J.R. Smith scored 10 points. That's the only other person who had double figures for the Cavaliers. Now, if you remember, J.R. Smith got those, he, he reached double figures in overtime. So I, I'm less impressed by that. Uh, and Larry Nance Jr., notable, had nine. George Hill had seven. But really, Not a lot of scoring for the Cavaliers other than LeBron James. LeBron James is the Cavaliers' offense. Now, if you look at the Warriors' side of things, uh, I have a shocker for you. Four players uh, were scored over 10 points, and I will give you one guess as to who those four players are. Yeah, it's exactly who you would expect. The four All-Stars for the Cavaliers scored over 10 points. Draymond Green at 13, Steph Curry at 29, Kevin Durant 26, and Klay Thompson 24. And what I think is so cool is that this is really a bunch of stars and LeBron and a little bit of Kevin Love, but really LeBron is taking them head on. He played 48 minutes last night. LeBron James, I, I was surprised he honestly even left the court. They got lucky. You know, he went out for three and a half minutes at the end of the second quarter and it didn't burn the Cavaliers. I mean, LeBron James' absence uh, for the time he did sit, they were okay. I think they, they, they actually won. They had a plus minus differential when LeBron James wasn't on the court. Um, so that's that's exciting and interesting is that the Cavaliers were able to take advantage of the Warriors' poor bench, basically. I mean, they took advantage of Looney. They took advantage of Sean Livingston a couple times. I really like um, the strategy that the Warriors had, so the Cavaliers had. They really attacked down low, and that was good. Uh, and the truth is, the Cavaliers had opportunities to win last night. The Cavaliers had plenty of opportunities to win the game. They simply didn't. They simply didn't capitalize enough. And I want to now move into the referees. Because I I was really annoyed by the refs last night. I think the refs were far too involved in the game. I think, especially at the, both at the end of regulation and at the end of overtime, why are the refs making calls? Why are the refs slowing down the game? And that's what happened, and that is what I don't like to see. Um, so first, I want to talk about the end of regulation. I think this was with 36 seconds left. Kevin Durant is driving the ball. He, he, is, he is driving to the lane, driving to the basket. LeBron steps in front of him. He gets knocked over, and a 
charging call is made, which is an offensive foul. Kevin Durant, the foul is on Kevin Durant. Now, there are some technicalities you need to understand here. Um, a charge is called if a player is outside of the restricted zone, which is a little semicircle right under the basket. LeBron James was outside of the restricted zone, which means a blocking or charging foul can be called. Now, another thing you need to know is that a player needs to be in a, quote, defensive stance for this to be called, for a charging foul to be called. If you knock over a player who's in a defensive stance, that is a charging foul. That means it's an offensive foul. And the reason why this is in the NBA is because you don't want players to simply bigger, stronger to just be able to bull rush anybody, knock people over and go score. That's not really fair. So the competitive um, kind of balance to this is ch- the charging call. And uh, initially the refs came to the decision that, you know what, LeBron James is in a defensive position and they called charging and they decided to take another look at it. And when they took a look at it, the, the call was overturned, which is something I didn't agree with. But the refs came out and said that LeBron James was not in a defensive position. And I, what I don't like about this call and why I think they really botched this call was I think it's too close for you to make a decision. If it's that close, you just got to go with the call on the court. We see this in football all the time. If you can't, if there's not definitive proof, you can't overturn it. And I thought it was not 100% clear whether LeBron was or was not in a, quote, defensive stance. And so I think it was a very bad decision to overturn. And it really, really slowed down the, it slowed down the game. It slowed down momentum. And it, it really cost the Cavaliers. But I think there's more. I think it keeps going. The refs made multiple calls that cost the Cavaliers last night. They called a foul on George Hill. George Hill had a, a, a clean strip of Kevin Durant. He, it, was either, it was either Kevin Durant or, or Sean Livingston. But George Hill had a clean strip. George Hill hits the ball out of the player's hands. All ball. Doesn't touch the player. Only touches the ball. And yet they still called a foul on George Hill anyways that's not good but now here it gets worse at the end of the game two seconds off the game is over the Cavaliers have they're down by 10 the game is over Sean Livingston shoots the ball and Tristan Thompson doesn't like it Tristan Thompson gets close and I don't really know how to describe what Tristan Thompson did he kind of he like raised his arm but not really very high he just kind of he kind of I guess he grazed Sean Livingston and uh like he barely touched him he was not there's nothing like aggressive about this And the ref decided to call a flagrant foul, and they ejected Tristan Thompson from the game. And I thought it was way too over the top. It was very weird and felt very one-sided. It was a very weird, concerning call. I don't know that that's even a foul, let alone a flagrant foul worth ejecting someone over. And um, I, I just think it was a very weird, strange overreaction. Now, the NBA looks bad. The NBA looks bad tonight, uh, today, after, in the wake of game one between the Cavs and the Warriors because it looks a lot like the Warriors were favored with calls. I don't know that that's necessarily true, but whether it's true or not, the perception is the refs were rooting for the Warriors. That's how it feels when you watch the game. And that's not good. I mean, the refs got in the way. They slowed down the game. The refs were a bad, bad look for the NBA last night. I think it's important to understand the situation. Some people have said that the Cavaliers are the biggest underdog in NBA Finals history. That's not good. Like, you can't you can't have that and then call make a bunch of calls against them. It just looks bad. It's bad perception. Again, whether it's true or not, it's bad perception to have a bunch of calls go the Warriors' way and not even give the Cavaliers a chance. And um, I just, I don't know. I think it's no good. Now, I want to point out, I do not think that the refs can lose a game for a team. 
I don't think it's true. A lot of people are saying, you know, the refs, the refs and J.R. Smith, they're the two reasons why the Cavaliers lost. I don't know that that's true. If you remember, I've, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I was a part of a, a very embarrassing game on national TV where I lost because of the, a call that the referees made. I was playing quarterback in that game. Look it up. Look up River Skyview. Some whistles blew, some whistles didn't blow, and you know you can make your own decision. But watch it online. Um, I what I learned from that game is that a loss is a, is made up of a series of events. It's never one thing. It's never one thing. And if you leave a game up to the referees, it's actually your fault. Why didn't you just win? If you just win a game by twenty points, you can never leave it to the refs. And so. Um, I, I just think a loss is a collection of bad things going wrong. You can't blame it on the referees. It's never fair. Even if the referees have a terrible thing, you can overcome it. You can overcome bad officiating. Um, but multiple times, and this is 100% true, multiple times, over three, the referees hurt the Cavaliers at the end of both regulation at the end of overtime, and that's not good. I, that's a bad, bad look for the refs. Now, I... I want to go back to the LeBron call, the the blocking call on LeBron. There was a there was controversy. Was it a charge? Was it a block? And remember, it was originally an, a foul on Kevin Durant was overturned and called a foul on LeBron, which hurt the Cavaliers. Now, I, I, I want to revisit this because I wish LeBron James had made a play on the ball. See, what LeBron James did, something he did multiple times in game one, is LeBron James decided to be passive. He left fate up to somebody not named LeBron James. So when LeBron James is is preparing to guard Kevin Durant, Kevin Durant is driving to the lane. He's going to the basket. You had an opportunity for the number one player in the world and the number two player in the world to collide at the rim. Which one of them is going to win? Is LeBron James going to make a block? Is he going to make a play? Or is Kevin Durant going to posterize LeBron James? The problem was... LeBron James bowed out. LeBron James decided not to compete. Rather than take Kevin Durant head on, LeBron James decided to try to earn a charging foul. And when you do that, you're leaving it up to somebody else. When you decide to not put fate in your own hands, but leave it in the fate of the refs, you're deciding to give up your right to make a decision. Basically, you're leaving your fate in the hands of the refs, and that's never smart. I want to control my own destiny. I don't want to leave my destiny up to the refs. And that's what LeBron James did when he decided to try to get a charging call rather than take Kevin Durant head on at the rim. Now, I don't understand how you stop Kevin Durant. I'm not saying I have any theory on how LeBron James could have stopped Kevin Durant. It's basically impossible, but he should have taken him head on. It gave him two points anyways. And so I think LeBron James should have made a play at the ball rather than try to earn a charging foul. Because again, when you leave your fate up to someone else, you're tempting fate. And the refs basically said, no, we're not going to help you. And they screwed over LeBron James. Right, wrong, or indifferent, LeBron James could have controlled that situation, and he didn't. Which, if you remember, that's something LeBron James did multiple times last night. He could have made the final shot with 4.7 seconds left, and instead he decided to give the ball to George Hill, and ultimately J.R. Smith screwed him over. Or he could have tried to get, he could have tried to make a play on the ball and instead he left it up to the refs. So I think this loss is so much on LeBron James and so much more than we're giving him credit for. I know LeBron James scored 51 points. I know that's super impressive, but it, it doesn't matter because LeBron James was passive. LeBron James did not 
do everything he could to control his own destiny. In fact, often LeBron James decided to leave fate up to somebody else. And that is not what the greatest player in the world should have done. <clears throat> okay, we're going to talk a lot about the Cowboys. Um, I, want, I want to now shift your attention to football. I know that um, it, we're, we're very divided on this podcast. Half the people like when I talk about basketball, and it seems like another half are like, hey, get to NFL. The NFL is better. I'm not, I'm not going to make fun of my own audience. Uh, but they're like, they're saying, I want NFL. And I understand. Uh, the problem is, it's I can't not talk about the NBA Finals. I'm very invested. I care. I know half my audience does care. So I'm going to continue to talk about basketball. It's what I do. Um, and you know what? If you don't like it, you can go listen to there. Are, I break out every segment on YouTube. You can just watch basketball or I put timestamps down below. Um, I try to do that every episode so that you can, if you want to pick and choose what topics you want to hear about, you can. So now I want to talk about Dak Prescott. <clears throat> I, uh, I, I have two feelings about Dak Prescott. First is I think Dak Prescott is going to have his best year that he's ever had. But I also think it will not be a massive, massive leap. I think his massive, massive leap will come farther down the road and you need to give Dak Prescott one more year of patience. See, first of all, I believe Dak Prescott will be the, the best he's ever been. And there's a couple reasons for this. The first reason why I think Dak Prescott will be the best he's ever been is that, well, let's be honest, Ezekiel Elliott's coming back. That's one reason. It's no secret that having a great running game and having a great running back will help you tremendously in the passing game because play action is more effective and it matters more. So having Ezekiel Elliott for the full season next year, even if it's not Ezekiel Elliott, maybe Rod Smith, whoever it is, having a great running game will tremendously help Dak Prescott. Now, the other thing is this, though, is offensive line will be better. A lot of the woes for the Dallas Cowboys last year came because Tyron Smith, the left tackle for the Cowboys, got injured. He was replaced by Byron Bell and Chaz Green. Chaz Green and Byron Bell are awful. They can't block anybody. I don't know a single team they could start on in the entire NFL, and it's a really big problem. People kind of misremember what happened last year for the Cowboys. It was not Ezekiel Elliott that was the problem for the Cowboys. They have other good running backs that can contribute when Ezekiel Elliott is injured. The reason why the Cowboys struggled so much on offense last year was because nobody, nobody could block the defensive end on the left side. The Cowboys simply had, did not have an answer. They could not block anybody. I don't know that Aaron Rodgers or Russell Wilson could have succeeded with that offensive line last year because that's how bad their left tackle was. I mean, it was really horrible. The third reason why I think Dak uh, Prescott's going to have a better year this year is he does not have to worry about Des Bryant. Des Bryant brought a lot of drama for the Cowboys. Des Bryant was a pain in the butt. He wanted the ball. He had ego. They didn't have good chemistry. I believe that without Des Bryant, Dak Prescott's going to be more successful. I don't think Des Bryant was a good thing for Dak Prescott. I think Des Bryant was actually a hindrance and kind of a baby you had to worry about. And I don't think that's good for Des Bry for Dak Prescott. So I think Dak Prescott, Dak Prescott will be better this year without Des Bryant. Another reason is he got a new quarterback coach. You may or may not rem remember, uh, Kellen Moore was Dak Prescott's backup quarterback last year. <clears throat> and uh, I, I, I loved, I love, love, I'm going to talk about Kellen Moore later. I love Kellen Moore. He's a great uh, Boise State quarterback. So Kellen Moore was... Dak Prescott's backup quarterback last year, he has now been moved to the quarterback coach for the Dallas Cowboys. I think that will really help Dak Prescott. He will give Dak Prescott a lot of insight. They, I think they work well together, and I think I'm very excited for the new quarterback coach for the Cowboys. I think he's a better fit for Dak Prescott. 
But I want to reiterate something. I want Cowboys fans to give Dak Prescott patience. See, we're going to see improvement from Dak Prescott this year. I'm so, so sure of it. That's part of why I believe so heavily in the Cowboys this year is I think Dak Prescott is going to be uh, better. I think he's going to improve. I think Dak Prescott will have his best year he's ever had. But uh, the reason why I want Cowboys fans to give Dak Prescott some patience is that I don't think he's going to improve that much. I look at the history of quarterbacks, and if you look around the league, um, in, in year four and five, in, in, so Dak Prescott's entering his third year in the NFL. For most quarterbacks around the league, year four or five is when quarterbacks have their big jump. That's when quarterbacks really make a huge step and leap forward and get to an elite level. So Russell Wilson in year four had a huge leap. He got tremendously better. Or Matt Ryan and Cam Newton, they got much better in their fifth year. Big ben, I mean, Matt, Cam Newton was MVP level in his fifth year. Big Ben in year four took a huge jump. And if you look around the league again, year four and five is when quarterbacks make their big jump, not year three. So give Dak Prescott will be better this year. And in year four or five, he will take his big jump. That's historically what quarterbacks do if you look around the league. I, I repeat, Des, Dak Prescott will be better. Dak Prescott will be his most improved. He's going to have a great year. He will have his best year he's ever had as a Cowboy. But don't expect a huge leap. Dak Prescott's huge leap will come in year four or five. I'm very excited. I think that is a, I'm, I'm really excited for that prediction. You know, maybe it's earlier than we all think, but if Dak Prescott doesn't make a huge, tremendous leap this year, it's okay. No, there's, I can't find a single quarterback in the NFL that took a huge leap in year three, year four and five, Andrew Luck, everybody else year four and five is when quarterbacks have their great, great stride forward. So that's what I would say is I think year three will have a, here's my prediction. Year three will be a step forward for Dak Prescott. He'll have his best year he's ever had, but it will be incremental. It'll be a small improvement. Year four or five is when we will see Dak Prescott take a massive leap forward and become maybe one of the top 10 quarterbacks in the NFL. That's my prediction. I'm excited to see what happens. <clears throat> Drink some water. Am I talking too quickly? I don't know. Um, I just talk We'll figure it out later. Oh, man. So I put on my Instagram story the other day. I said, you know, hey, I I want something recommended to me on in, on Netflix or Amazon Prime. And because um, I, I, I wanted a new television show to watch. And I got about 40 replies. It was overwhelming, actually. I got a bunch of replies, many, many suggestions for TV shows I should watch. And to be honest, <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I, I ignored all of them. I didn't listen to anything anybody said. I didn't watch Arrow. I didn't watch... Um, I think Hell's Kitchen. There's a bunch of stuff that was recommended. I don't even know what they were. What I decided to watch was an Amazon Prime show called All or Nothing, a season with the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, it's really, if you miss football, I miss football tremendously. If you miss football, that's what you should watch. You should spend your time watching All or Nothing on Amazon Prime. That's It really gave me a taste of football that I've missed um, this whole offseason. It's been a long offseason. I really miss football. I can't wait for August. And uh, that's that watching all or nothing was a very big, awesome moment for me. It gave me a reason and a chance to kind of catch up with football again. Um, I, I will say what's so important is you, know, you may or may not have watched Last Chance You on Netflix. That's what this show is. Last Chance You is a season following a team, and it's very similar to what we get with all or nothing. It's basically the Amazon Prime version and an NFL version of Last Chance You. 
In fact, there's this moment. This show is so well made. There's a moment where Orlando Skandrick is, he picks up the ball and runs for a touchdown. And I was so excited. I was so elated because earlier in the show, a couple weeks ago, a couple episodes prior, I got introduced to Orlando Skandrick. I knew his, his story. I knew what was going on with his hand. I knew a little bit about his family. So it was really fun. I was rooting for Orlando Skandrick. So again, if you miss football, watch All or Nothing on Amazon Prime. It's fantastic. But the glaring thing I saw in All or Nothing, a season with the Dallas Cowboys, I got to watch Des Bryant. And, uh, you know, I've, I have, I've often wondered, I've watched Des Bryant not sign a contract all offseason. And I've wondered, why aren't teams like the Patriots? The Patriots are known to go after veteran players, players who seem risky to most people. Why are the Patriots not going after Des Bryant? Why is Des Bryant not signing anywhere? And so I'm watching the Amazon Prime show All or Nothing, and Des Bryant is a head case. Des Bryant is a mess. I would not want to work with Des Bryant at all. There, there's no reason like, why he should be signed. I, I don't think that anyone would want to work with him. I, uh, there's a great quote. Derek Dooley was, is the former Dallas Cowboys wide receivers coach. He is now the offensive coordinator for the University of Missouri in the SEC. He said that when Des Bryant is at his best, he's a ton of fun to coach. But when Des Bryant is not at his best, it can really be a struggle. And what I read from that and what I watched on screen and and behind the scenes, it's all very clear. Des Bryant is a pain in the butt. Des Bryant is not something or a player you want to work with. Des Bryant is not fun. And not just not fun. Des Bryant is a bad experience. See, Des Bryant is, is slow. He's not a good route runner. He struggles to catch the ball. And he thinks he's worth a lot of money. I'm not, I'm not going for any of that. What, if you can't catch, if you can't run good routes or you're not fast, what do you have to offer as a wide receiver? And I think Des Bryant is extremely, extremely limited. The reality is he has nothing left to offer. And he thinks he deserves big money, and he doesn't at all. I would sign Brandon Marshall. The Seahawks did before I signed Des Bryant. See, there's a, there's a funny quote I want to tell you uh, from Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers was talking about the possibility on the Packers signing Des Bryant. And Aaron Rodgers, he said, uh, why would you cut Jordy Nelson, his former favorite wide receiver who was getting old? Why would you cut Jordy Nelson and sign Des Bryant? (laughs) Very clearly saying, hey, Des Bryant is a downgrade from anything we have on this roster. We don't want to work with him. And I just, I think that the whole thing is I would not work with Des Bryant. I'd be surprised... I don't know where he's going to sign. I, he may not sign with anywhere. Like, he may take a year off. I, I, the Ravens tried to sign him, and he said no. And I think the reason was he wanted more money, and that's not going to happen. Des Bryant, you can find a better productive, a productive wide receiver. You can find more catches and better attitude elsewhere for cheaper. And I just, like, there's this scene in All or Nothing where Des Bryant is rambling. He is just going on this weird alarming rant about nothing and I'm sitting there like dude what are you talking about Des Bryant what are you even saying there's no point to what you're saying <laughs> you can make that argument about this show um <laughs> I-, I wouldn't want to deal with Des because Des Bryant is just a head case that I would not at all want to work with I would not want to sign Des Bryant is just a mess and I would not sign him to my NFL team there's a there's a story I kind of passed over And that is Kellen Moore was signed uh, as the quarterback coach for the Dallas Cowboys. The new quarterback coach for the Dallas Cowboys is a guy named Kellen Moore. 
Kellen Moore, I, I loved him. He's, he's, it's very unique because Kellen Moore last year was the backup quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. And what you rarely see in the NFL is someone go directly from a player to an assistant coach. That doesn't happen. And to go do that in the same system you were in last year, to go from being a teammate of Dak Prescott to now being his coach is very weird. And I've seen some people criticize that. I've seen some people excited about that. Ironically, it's something I just completely missed until I looked, did some research on it. I think it's a great move. I think Kellen Moore is a fantastic decision to be the quarterback coach for Dak Prescott. First of all, Kellen Moore is basically a coach already. If you, if you look and kind of follow who Kellen Moore was, he was basically a coach that wore shoulder pads. I mean, he's not... He was never going to play last year. He never would have. He had some success in the preseason, which is fun to watch. But he's really he was just a coach on the field. That's what Kellen Moore was. And uh, I, I think he's a great hire for the Cowboys. I think he works well with Des, Dak Prescott. You can watch uh, all or nothing behind the scenes. You can get a little bit of that. And I'm really, really excited for Dak Prescott's evolution and his ability to work with Kellen Moore. If you remember, someone asked me the other day, said, who is your favorite player? Ever in college football, who who is your over the years? Who is your favorite player from college football? My answer was actually Kellen Moore. Kellen Moore was entertaining. He gave us many many entertaining years. Not one year, not two years, three or four awesome entertaining years when he was a quarterback at Boise State. I loved watching Kellen Moore. I remember watching him with my dad, and I think Kellen Moore is at the beginning of a really great career. Take note of Kellen Moore now. Because we, we talk about Sean McVay. Sean McVay came out of nowhere. We talk about Kyle Shanahan. I think Kellen Moore is a similar type of guy where he's going to move up the ranks in the NFL. And I think someday Kellen Moore might be a great offensive, uh, a great head coach. I think Kellen Moore could be a great head coach someday. If you watch Gruden's QB camp, he talks about that um, on uh, with ESPN's former host, Gr- John Gruden, now coach of the Raiders. He went and visited with John Gruden. They filmed it. And he said, yeah, I want to be a coach someday. And uh, it's very clear Kellen Moore has always been extremely adept with understanding how NFL offenses work, how football offenses work. He At Boise State, Kellen Moore was never an athletic specimen. He never had a great arm. He never was fast. He had a pretty weak arm, actually, for a Division I quarterback. But he was extremely smart. He was well-prepared, and he loved football. So I am so happy for Kellen Moore congratulations on your first coaching job. He's going to be a great quarterback coach for uh, Dak Prescott, and I think he can bring more than just that. I think in the next couple years, we could see, maybe maybe it's 10, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 5. We could see Kellen Moore as a head coach in the NFL down the road. Pay attention to Kellen Moore. Oh, man. I'm going to drink some water. Um, that there are two stories I want to talk about left. I want to talk about baseball now. And at the end, we're going to talk about the New England Patriots. So first I want to talk about the Seattle Mariners. Um, growing up, I was a huge fan of the Seattle Mariners. They were my favorite team. I watched every single game. I had Mariners shirts. I had a Mariners poster. I was a big, big fan of the Seattle Mariners. I used to watch with my grandpa and it was, uh, a joy to me. We'd watch every single game. I was a devoted, devout fan of the Seattle Mariners. And uh, as I grew up, I began thinking for myself. I began, began paying attention to what the Seattle Mariners were doing in their front office. 
And I, I began to disagree with moves. I began to disagree with players they were trading away or players they were not bringing back. And uh, I just, I really would get frustrated with the Seattle Mariners would trade away players. They'd get rid of players and their players would become stars at other places. I'm going to name a couple. You can, if you want to research it, you can, you could make a whole all-star level team filled with former Mariners. I remember when the Mariners traded away, they got rid of Adrian Beltre. Adrian Beltre went to the uh, Texas Rangers and became a star. I think he became an all-star. He's fantastic. He would beat the crap out of the Mariners all the time. And I was so frustrated when the Mariners got rid of Adrian Beltre or Raul Abanez. Raul Abanez left the Mariners and became a star with the Philadelphia Phillies. Whether they intentionally got rid of them or not didn't matter. I was frustrated as a young kid with these players were with the Mariners and now they're not. And they're fantastic when they weren't with the Mariners. And I remember even, hell, even the bad players for the Mariners, Unieski Betancourt, Justin Smoke went on to other places and became really good starters. And I was so frustrated, I still am, with this, this helpless feeling. I had no input. I had no agency over the franchise I was rooting for. And I remember there's a big key moment with the Mariners in the history of the Mariners, uh, February 9, 2008. I, I would have been 10 years old. It was a month before my birthday. Um, the Mariners traded young prospect Adam Jones for a starting pitcher named Eric Bedard. And I was only 10 years old, but I knew, I knew this was a horrible, horrible decision. And yet that's what the Mariners did. And uh, it was, it was so frustrating because I had no agency, had no impact. I mean, there's, there are other players they got rid of starting pitchers. I think Var- Jason Vargas, other, other players they got rid of, and they went on to become very good players with other franchises other organizations and I was so frustrated I'm a little kid and I'm like I know this isn't right I know these are bad moves why am I rooting for this team that keeps hurting me I I hate this team I'm rooting for they keep making decisions that I don't agree with why am I still rooting for this team and uh, you know I joked for a long time the Mariners the Mariners are why I believe in divorce I've made that joke for years now um, it's half a joke, but a lot of it's true to be like, to be quite honest. Um, I was, I was a miserable fan. I was miserable. I hated rooting for the Mariners because every year they'd get rid of people. I love, they get rid of players. I liked, and guess what? Every year it wouldn't work out. It would work out better for the people who got the players. And I was so frustrated and I realized I couldn't change things. I had no agency. And I'm like, I can't, I cannot root for a team that I vehemently disagree with. I hate the moves the Mariners are making, and I'm not going to root for this team anymore. And so I decided, I'm done. I'm not a Mariners fan. It was freeing. It felt good. Like, screw you, Mariners. I I don't like this. I hate what you're doing, and I'm not going to root for you anymore. And uh, I think it would be different if I lived in Seattle, but I don't. For example, if if you live in Seattle, if I lived in Seattle, I would regularly go to Mariners games. I would be upset with how badly the team was doing, but I would eat a hot dog. I'd chill out. I'd have fun. But I don't live in Seattle. I live very far away from the Mariners. I, I'm not going to do that. I think another parallel is Cleveland Browns fans. If you live in Cleveland, I understand. Go to games, have fun, whatever. But if you don't, why are you rooting for this team that you hate? That's ba- I, I, I just If my team picked Johnny Manziel and Brandon Whedon, I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not supporting that. I, I, I won't. I refuse. To pass on that many quarterbacks, how do you root for the Browns? And I just... I think it's it's interesting. If you live in a different city, it makes sense. But if you don't, why are you rooting for a team you're mad at, you disagree with, you hate? You have no control over that relationship. And uh, 
with the Mariners, I just gave up. I was like, I can't root for this team anymore. I will no longer be a fan of this team. I'm so frustrated. I'm so fed up. And my lesson from the Mariners was, if I'm in a relationship where I have no control and I don't like how things are going, you can't win. You just got to, I gave up. I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm not rooting for the Mariners anymore. I'm out. In fact, I think I think today the Mariners are winning. Like I think some I, I haven't followed the Mariners in in years. I think they're actually successful right now. But I don't care. I'm not. I'm out. You lost me. I'm never going back. Call me a bad fan. Call me a hater. Whatever. But I realized that life is too short to waste your time on something you hate. And I went from a a young fan who loved my team to over the next couple of years going, no, no, no. Why are you doing that? And I got so frustrated and realized I can't root for this team anymore. I, uh, I don't have a favorite baseball team. It's great. I love baseball. I watch baseball. But I don't have the burden of watching this crappy team every single day. And it's just horrible. And I think it's funny. I had a friend who said to me the other day, he said, you know, well, I'm a, I'm a Kansas City Royals fan. And you know how tough that is. And I said, really? How, how is that supposed to be tough? Because the Royals have... Two championships. In fact, the Royals have one championship recently in 2015. In the last three years, the, the Royals have won a championship. How is it tough to be a Royals fan? Because if you look at the Mariners, in my entire lifetime, I'm 21 years old. In my entire lifetime, the Mariners have never once had a playoff season. They have not made the playoffs in my entire lifetime. In fact, in America, the longest playoff drought of the four major sports. I think it even includes the MLS now. Top five, screw it. Baseball, football, basketball, NHL, and soccer. No team has had a longer playoff drought than the Seattle Mariners. That's atrocious. That's a mess. I will not root for that. I was so frustrated when the Mariners traded away Adam Jones for Eric Bedard. It will haunt me forever. I couldn't do it, and I, I just gave up. I said, I can't, I can't root for this team anymore. The Mariners had a loyal fan, and they lost me with bad, bad decision-making. I'm not going to go back. I refuse. Call me a bad fan. Call me whatever you want. But I, there's bad blood. I, I'm still, to this day, upset and angered by the decisions the Mariners have made. I will not go back. I will never be a fan of the Mariners ever again. I watched every single day for years and watched bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And if your team sucks, if your team is awful, and you complain about it, it's your fault. You're rooting for a team that is bad. When I see Browns fans go, oh, I can't believe we did this. Why are you rooting for them? Walk away. Go find a better situation. I don't understand. And I agree it's different. If you live in Cleveland, if you live in Seattle, if you have access to go watch games regularly, that's very different. But if you live miles and miles away and you hate the way your team is run, please, for the love of God, either walk away or don't complain. You're not a victim. You don't have to be a fan of this team. You're not stuck. I was not stuck as a fan of the Mariners. I got frustrated. I said, screw it. I am not rooting for this awful team anymore. I can't do it. I'm done. So I would encourage you, if you hate your team, if you hate the way things are going, let go. Walk away. It's okay. You're not bad. For some reason, there's this whole culture. You got to root for this team even though they suck and they have no investment. You have no say over what goes on. No, you don't. You don't. You're not obligated to root for a team. If your team sucks and you hate the way they're being run, do what I did. Walk away. I'm still obviously very frustrated by this, but I just, I don't know. I, I'm not 
ever investing money or time into the Seattle Mariners ever again. I just refuse to give them my energy, my time, and my money. Beyond this topic, because I knew it might be entertaining to hear me rant about how frustrated and how angry I am at the Mariners. Do not waste your time on teams that you hate. Hmm. I don't know. I, I'm sure that's going to be a... Uh, either no one's going to pay attention to that topic at all, like no one will watch it, or I'm going to lose a lot of followers and a lot, get a lot of hate in my, uh, in my state where I live, because I live in Washington, and uh, I, I, people are going to hate that or think it's funny. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> I want to talk about the New England Patriots. So I've been following this developing story with Cassius Marsh. She came out and said that playing for the Patriots is not fun. Playing for the Patriots just is a pain in the butt. It's not fun. And multiple players have come out now and said, yeah, the Patriots culture is not fun. In fact, Brandon Brooks, a player who played for not the Patriots, played for the Texans, who was Bill Belichick's protege. He came out and said, yeah, the Patriot way sucks. I played for Bill O'Brien. He adopted the Patriot ways. That's not fun. And so... Kind of the narrative out there is that playing for the Patriots, playing in the Patriots culture is not an enjoyable experience. And so in response, Devin McCourty, Bill Belichick, and Dante Hightower came out with a unified message addressing these comments. They said, basically, you know what? Winning is the goal. Winning is what matters. They kind of really what the, the message was, was, hey, uh, scoreboard, <laughs> We've been to eight Super Bowls. Tell me that's not fun, Browns. Kind of the point, right? If you hate losing, don't criticize us for we're winning. And you say it's not fun, but we're having fun. We like winning. That's basically what the point was. Uh, And the players even said, look, I like winning. We would play for someone else if we thought losing was fun, but we play for the Patriots where we win. And I I tend to agree with that. I I know I came out and I said, I'm going to hear out Cassius Marsh. I said, I'm going to listen to him. I'm going to hear what he has to say. And uh, I'll pay attention. I did a topic. I said, what if he's right? What if Cassius Marsh is right? What if playing for the Patriots, not only a not fun experience, a neutral experience, what if playing for the Patriots is bad? But if you say not fun, here's what I tend to kind of where I tend to fall. Work is not fun. Work is not an enjoyable experience. Work is work. And I want to ask you a question because I'm a very serious person. I I probably take myself a little too seriously. Um, At your job, you you listening probably have a job. Is fun ever a factor? Has fun ever been a key part of your job? Like in your job description, when you got interviewed, when you got hired, even now, is fun a big component of your job? My guess is no, it's not. Because professionals understand that work is work and work is not fun. And in fact, there's a time for fun, the weekends, and there's a time for not fun, which is when you're at work. Uh, and I, I think that I, I kind of I side with the Patriots on this, to be honest. I, I know that maybe Cassius Mars has some things, and I'm going to definitely follow this story. If it turns out a lot more players come through or if the Patriots have a bad year, maybe there's either the Patriots route, you know, the way is eroding or whatever. But I don't think that the Patriots being unfun is the reason why they've In fact, the struggles recently, I think, have come from Tom Brady's lack of cohesion with Bill Belichick. It's not because the Patriot way isn't fun. The Patriot way works. They've been to eight Super Bowls. They won five of them. Bill Belichick has a culture that works. You can't criticize the Patriot way, say, the Patriot way isn't fun. That's a bad criticism. What you can say is there's a lack of cohesion between the coach and the quarterback. And it's creating mistrust. It's creating all kinds of problems. There's one criticism of the culture that works. 
The criticism of the Patriots culture that does not work for me is to say, they're not fun. You can say it's miserable, but that's different than saying not fun because work should not be fun. And if you look closely at Cassius Marsh's comments, he talks about how it was a joyless experience. Okay. Um, I, I work at a car place. That's not a joyful experience. I'm not sitting at work going, yippee. I'm so happy. I get to change the oil today. I love getting oil all over my hands. Nobody likes that. It's not fun. At least not for me. I don't think it's fun. And most jobs I've had have not been quote unquote fun because work is work. And so I, I just think, again, ask yourself, does work, does fun matter at your job? If the answer is no, I don't know how you can side with Cassius Marsh. I really don't. We can all hope. You can hope. I don't hope. I like the Patriots, but you can hope. Man, I hope the Patriots culture erodes. But you, you can't criticize the Patriots for not having a fun culture when you at your own job don't enjoy work. Remember, if you hate high school football, if it's not fun for you in high school, quit. Give up. But in the NFL, you're getting paid a lot of money. And they're not paying you to have fun. An NFL team pays their players because pl- teams want to win. A Super Bowl, a ring, is the goal. And that's the only goal. A goal for an NFL team is not to have fun. Hey, if we have fun along the way, awesome. But uh, fun at work doesn't really matter. All right. Uh, that's all I have. Remember, you can subscribe to Strong Opinion Sports on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and on YouTube. You can find the full entire hour-long podcast on YouTube as well as my best, most interesting clips. If you like Strong Opinion Sports as much as I do, help me grow this podcast by telling your friends about this show. Um, I can't believe we made it to an hour. I really did not think today's episode is going to be very long or very good, and I hope it was both. Um, I, I do hope you enjoyed the show. I think Monday's episode is going to be much better. I'm very excited, but I, I really liked what I said about LeBron James. I think it is without a shadow of a doubt on LeBron James. He should have taken the final shot for the Cleveland Cavaliers. He didn't, and that's a big problem. So um, if you take nothing away from this podcast, please remember, LeBron James had the ball with 4.7 seconds left. He had an opportunity to win the game, and LeBron James did not take the final shot. He passed it up. He gave up the ball, and that is why I believe the Cavaliers lost in game one. Because LeBron James could have dribbled out the clock and shot the final shot with one second left, and we would never have to worry about anything if he just made that shot. So, um, yeah, say what you want. I think LeBron James is the reason why the Cavaliers lost game one uh, in the NBA Finals. My name is Zach Schaumler. That is all I have. I'm very excited for We're coming back Monday. There's a Finals game on Sunday. On Monday, you will hear from me, my reaction. I'm already working on preparing Monday's show so that when I have everything ready to go Sunday night, then the game will happen. All I have to do is insert Monday's, uh, sorry, Sunday night's reaction to the game. And then Monday we can record at 9 a.m. That is my plan. I do work all weekend. I also have to help someone move tomorrow. Um, but I will be hopefully doing the show at 9 a.m. on Monday. My name is Zach Schaumler. Thank you so very much for listening. I hope you have a great day. I will see you on Monday. But I'm bum. Bam, we're done.